The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, and welcome to Spectrumly Speaking. I'm Becca Lurie. I'm your house Aspie, your mindfulness reminder, and also your favorite cup of tea. And I'm joined here by Dr. Kate Cody. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist who practices in New York City. I work with kids through adults on the autism spectrum um, with a specialty in diagnostic evaluations, particularly for adults and women. And I supervise and train graduate students and postdocs so that we have more clinicians who are equipped to um, meet the needs of this community. Yay. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Before we get started, I want to wish everybody a very happy April. April is Autism Month, and I hope you guys are keeping it positive and celebrating the spectrum all over the place. Um, I'm a little bit excited about today's episode because we're going to be doing a good old-fashioned me and you episode, um, which I really enjoy. I know you really like them because it's like a conversation that we get to have on our own for a change. Um, And this is what we're going to be discussing today, guys. We are going to talk diagnosis. Um, We get questions about it all the time. I do. Kate does. um, People want to know. And there's always new people looking for a diagnosis, looking to get diagnosed. So it's never a bad time to talk about it again. So we're going to do that today. Um, And since we have Kate with us, she is really probably the best diagnostician I know. Um, And I would send her everybody if it would mean that I would have no time with my friend. So (laughs) I can't do that. So she is going to definitely have a wealth of information for everybody listening. Um, And so I'm going to start peppering her with questions. (laughs) Okay. All right. Let's talk about the basics of diagnosis. What is a diagnostic evaluation? And kind of what are we doing in that process? Sure. So there's kind of there's different approaches clinically um, in terms of how how psychologists kind of approach um, diagnostic evaluations in adults. Um, So the way I kind of see them is a little bit more comprehensively and I won't isolate an evaluation to only look at possible autism spectrum related behaviors and history. Um, I also look at kind of other components. I want to understand a person's intellectual functioning. How are they functioning in the world on an everyday basis in terms of their adaptive functioning? Um, Executive functioning. So the kind of like quick and dirty explanation for, all right, what is executive functioning? You know, that is kind of the set of processes in our brain that's responsible for maintaining goal-oriented behavior. Um, and that's kind of the most nutshell definition that I can offer to a person mm. about what that is. Right. I know. Um, that's a good one. That's its own show, Executive Functioning. We'll have to do a whole episode on that. <laughs> we could. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also really having an understanding of a person's social-emotional functioning. I, I personally believe that I would be doing a disservice to a person um, if they come in for an evaluation with me. And I suspect that there might also, maybe that there is some kind of autism spectrum presentation, but that there could also be anxiety or depression or another um, co-occurring mental health presentation. So I personally, as a result of that kind of approach to diagnosis, I won't do an evaluation where I only look at the social communication patterns or restricted and repetitive interests because Mm. 
um, a person doesn't really function in a vacuum, and so neither should a diagnostic evaluation, um, in my opinion. Right. Um, I know that there are, you know, certain settings where that's, like, what the capacity is. So if you go to a research-based setting where you're receiving a research-based evaluation, they don't have the flexibility to necessarily perform more of a comprehensive evaluation they might be able to just look at the autism spectrum component and say yes or no. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, you know, certain like logistical limitations that are in place in certain settings. Uh, but I think that's part of it. And then I think the other piece is that it's super um, critical during an adult diagnostic evaluation to have a really strong sense of the developmental history and how long these social communication differences and um, kind of restricted interests or repetitive behaviors have been occurring because if everything kind of onset in adulthood, it's probably not autism. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the key parts, right? So we do know that autism is classified as what we call a neurodevelopmental diagnosis. Um, and so that means it's brain based mm-hmm. and that it's impacting and occurring throughout the course of a person's development. So, if we are not seeing evidence to support that these patterns of differences were present throughout a person's lifetime, then that's important for us to really have that understanding. Um, And so, you know, understanding not just what's happening now, but how did this unfold throughout a person's life is really, really critical. Right. And I think probably, you know, for me, like I, I always think, you know, my co-occurring conditions at the time of my diagnosis were just as important, if not more so, than my autism. Um, usually, I think as adults, that's sort of what people see. Right. You know, that's where they see the suffering. And so <clears throat> many times that's what brings us in in the first right. place. Right. So, you know, um, I guess what I want to say is maybe we should tell people who is a qualified evaluator um, if they're looking to go and get a nice rounded evaluation that isn't just the ASD component. What kind of professional are they looking for? You know, kind um, of like- so it's tricky because um, in my experience, people who are really good evaluators are, are usually clinical psychologists. There are actually some very well-trained um, people who have a background in school psychology who are also licensed cl- uh, psychologists. Um, and that they have kind of a blend of a background of both understanding mental health, mm-hmm. but also understanding autism and development. Mm-hmm. Um, and so finding people that kind of have, I guess, straddled both of those worlds right. is not always easy. Um, We exist, but Mm -hmm. it is hard to find. And so I think that, you know, being this is where I think for people who are maybe not in an urban area where there's more resources. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm aware that that's like a logistical limitation for people Mm -hmm. out there who are pursuing um, evaluations. And I've actually received thank you to our listeners who have sent me emails. I've received emails um, inquiring about evaluations um, when you are living in states where you don't necessarily have access Mm-hmm. Um, to an evaluation. But mm-hmm. I think that, you know, findings, being able to advocate for yourself and kind of saying to someone, um, you know, asking, do you have an understanding of kind of autism? What is that understanding? What is that training? And then also, like, do you have an understanding of what that looks like over the course of development? Or is that really just, you know, have you only worked with kids? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
which is a whole other piece. But right. then also like knowing someone who has an understanding of, of co-occurring mental health presentations or generally mental health um, overall. I think universities um, that have autism centers are often really good resources because even if they don't um, conduct the evaluations there, they can often provide appropriate referrals. Mm. There's yeah. like really great organizations, things like um, AHA or um, ANE, and we've mm -hmm. had, you know, and we've we've previously interviewed indiv uh, individuals who work for those kinds of organizations. Those are really great um, referral mm -hmm. um, sources, and they and a lot of times like they've really vetted out the people they're providing. Right. You're, so. <laughs> I always say try to find your local autism organization because if you can, those are the people that will have their ear to the floor and kind of know what's going on and know, you know, who the, the local people are who know what's, what's going on. Um, so if you have, can find that, seek one out, um, that's a really good place to be starting for those kind mm -hmm. of resources. So how are adult evaluations different from child evaluations? So I think one of the things that is really key in terms of the differences is with um, adult evaluations, um, you know, I think that actually this is more of a similarity, is that having a collateral reporter is really important. Mm -hmm. um, so with a child evaluation, I'm usually getting information from parents and teachers. With an adult I'm really looking for information, sometimes from parents, if that's an appropriate um, reference. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's siblings. Sometimes it's spouses or partners. Sometimes it's the best friend or a roommate, or it could be any number of different people. But the reason is one of the things that we know tends to be a challenge for many individuals on the autism spectrum, especially pre-diagnosis is self-monitoring and self-awareness and recognition of the impact of one's behavior upon others. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean for me as a clinician? It means that I need someone else to kind of tell me what they see mm -hmm. and to provide kind of observer information um, and, and an outsider to kind of say, oh, when this person goes into social situations, this is what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And this is a really important thing because I hope everybody was listening really carefully to the big long list of who a collateral reporter can be. Because um, one of the questions that I get asked the most as someone who is an adult on the spectrum from other adults on the spectrum is one of the reasons they don't seek a full evaluation is because they know they need a collateral reporter and there may be a failed relationship between parents and fa or other family members or those parents and family members may be gone. Mm -hmm. um, and so then people think they can't. Well, my parents aren't around. Who am I going to who's going to be able to talk about my childhood? Nobody. Mm -hmm. And that's it. <clears throat> um, and so, please, I hope you're all listening to Kate telling you that is not the case, that there are many people that can be a collateral reporter for you. There are. And I also have had, you know, certain instances where there truly is not someone in a person's life who can serve as a collateral reporter. Say it's an individual who lives alone who, you know, maybe even works from home, um, you know, who really does not have anyone that can serve as that um, kind of observer report. And and for me, I have the flexibility and I also have the, the kind of like tools in my toolbox to be able to say, okay, well, like, I'm going to definitely need to do a little bit more kind of testing that results in like direct observation for myself. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, 
personally would hate for someone to feel like, oh, I don't have anyone or, you know, my family, my relatives are unavailable or have passed or whatever the case may be. And then for someone to not pursue it. And and that for me, I won't allow that to be like a significant barrier. Mm -hmm. I will, however, make very sure that I am communicating that it's possible I might not get enough information. Mm hmm. And so I might move forward, but I I move forward with an explanation of here's the limitation and what I'm going to be able to do depending on how this goes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I think I think but but knowing that, I mean, all of that, it's it's sort of um, our black and white thinking (laughs) makes us think, you know, it's this or nothing. Um, Mm -hmm. There is flexibility in the evaluation process Um, and talk to your evaluators. If you're going, you can ask all of these questions. You can ask, you know, what background do you have? Do you cover all of these things in your evaluation process? Um, You know, where are your degrees from? Can I, you know, how many clients have you diagnosed? You can ask the questions that you want and they will give you the information. Um, So, yeah, you you want to feel comfortable with your evaluator. And if you don't feel comfortable asking the questions that are going to kind of keep you hung up, then I wouldn't go with that person. Yeah, I think one of the other things that I that I think is important um, is that, you know, the what maybe the content of what I'm looking at in a child evaluation versus an adult evaluation is not so different. Right. I'm looking for social communication patterns. I'm looking for the presence of restricted interest in repetitive behaviors. But I'm also being very clear that these things have a course of development over time, just like typical development. Mm-hmm. And so I am definitely aware of the fact that there is often for our adults, they've developed an abundance of compensatory strategies because they've had, a, you know, sometimes a full lifetime of trying to figure out how to navigate the world in as independent and uh, successful a way as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what that means is that just because a person comes into my office and they're able to do certain things now does mm-hmm. not mean that they were able to do those things always. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that they're not doing those things by putting in great effort to make sure those things are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really important thing. Whereas in a child, I have a little bit more of an expectation to kind of see an, a more active presentation mm-hmm. of um, some of the behaviors related to autism. Right. Now, there are plenty of adults where I still see that. I'm by no means saying I don't. I think that in, in an adult evaluation, I'm just anticipating that there's likely to be a little bit more nuance and kind of how those things emerge. Right. And so... Along that line, I guess, let's break down the diagnostic process a little bit. What are people looking at in terms of how many sessions are they going to for how long? What kind of formats and and testings could they be looking at um, just to kind of familiarize everybody with the process? Sure. I mean, so this is where what I would say is that every clinician is a little different. So I can certainly speak to my process and processes that I've, you know, been observed in various work settings over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, But typically there is an initial consultation or kind of an intake appointment. And during that intake appointment, there's a lot of history gathering, a lot of information gathering um, and kind of really getting a sense of kind of what what is the history of why this person is here seeking an evaluation? Mm-hmm. Um, and what are the things that are like kind of causing difficulty or barriers in this person's life right now? Um, and then from there, usually it's based on that initial appointment, I kind of will determine what the evaluation plan is. There are other uh, professionals that kind of utilize what, what we would call like a standard battery. 
And if it's an autism evaluation, they always do X, Y, and Z. There are some who are like me, and they maybe really try to individually tailor what the evaluation consists of. Um, and so it, it depends, and there's not, neither way is necessarily right or wrong. Everyone kind of has their different approach. Um, but it's important to kind of understand that there's two different kind of ways that clinicians will do these evaluations. Um, for something that is more of like, here's my standard battery, they usually have what, what we would might call like a tiered approach. And so what that means is if you want this level of evaluation, then this is what we do. If you want to add to that and also look at maybe we'll say executive functioning, then mm -hmm. this is the additional. And they kind of have it where it's preset out based right. on. Um, whereas I think what I do is I kind of I really sit with a person, I listen to what they need the re an evaluation for. Is this just for, um, because they want to clarify a if they have a diagnosis or don't, are they using this because they may want to apply for services? Are they using this because they need, um, vocational supports? Are they using this because they are looking for educational accommodations? Whatever it might be, that mm -hmm. kind of helps me in determining what testing is needed and then also how long of a report I'm going to have to generate. Mm -hmm. So having said that, this is tricky because there's no concrete black and white response. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but depending on how kind of um, simple in terms of the level of complexity of what measures I'm using, not simple in terms of the individual, but simple the evaluation is in terms of measures, it might be that I have someone come back for one three-hour appointment and we're really just looking at kind of autism spectrum and co-occurring mental health. And then we have a follow-up feedback meeting. It could also be that I have someone come back two or three times for two mm -hmm. to three-hour appointments each time if we're doing a little bit more cognitive or intellectual assessment and executive functioning and things like that as well as some of the um, – more social, emotional, and kind of ASD diagnostic. Mm -hmm. um, so there is some flexibility, and I know that that's confusing, especially because I'm a clinician, so I know what I'm talking about, but you all as listeners and as people who might be seeking evaluations don't. And so I get it that it might be like a little overwhelming and confusing about, well, why do I need whatever is being recommended? I really encourage you all, if you're going through this process, to ask the clinician. They should be able to give you a thorough explanation about what they're recommending and why. Mm -hmm. And if they uh, cannot, you have the option to get up and leave. That is the other piece, that one clinician is not the only clinician in the whole world. Uh, you have choices and options. And so I, that's the other piece of the, the whole puzzle. And, mm -hmm. and as someone who's walked through the diagnostic process, I can tell you that, yes, it was scary. I'm not going to lie that it wasn't scary. It was actually, um, I ended up having to go back four times, I think. So I went back four times in total. I had to, mm -hmm. to do a couple of talk sessions. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom at the time was with me. So she went and did, she was my collateral reporter. And so she had her session. I had to do um, three quizzes that I took home with me. Mm -hmm. And my mom took one. And I, they were the hardest tests I've ever taken in my life. Um, I, they were like, especially for me, it was like super vague. Like, cause yeah. it's just a scale of one to five. And it's like, well, how do you think you feel about this thing? 
and it was just so vague and and my brain just wanted to be like well, what's the right answer what's the right answer what's the right answer and because there is no right answer it was that much more difficult for me so I remember I handed in my papers and I said I'm so right. sorry I think I did so badly I don't I you know like I don't know what to give you like I genuinely like felt apologized to my evaluator so it was sort of that feeling but um understanding that later that there was really just no um right answer it was just kind of my yeah. answer um and that was yeah. that was interesting for me um and then you know we I did have a, a session at the very end where I got my mm -hmm. diagnosis and I that was explained to me as well as my coworkers. um mm -hmm. at the time and still I have major anxiety disorder and major depressive depressive disorder um and so I, I was explained all of those pieces the tests that I took and their results were explained to me mm -hmm. um so I do recommend bringing when you know you're going for your final appointment um, that you bring a piece of paper with you and a pen or um, a recorder if you want to um, or somebody else to take notes with you um, because it, it was a lot of information and it was all helpful and useful information. Um, I was also given a really great informational packet of some places I could start for information, some recommended reading, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. And that was sort of how, how, I, how I was left with it. I felt that for myself, I had a very good evaluation process. Um, I was nervous but I think anybody is nervous and mm -hmm. there were points that I was scared. But um, overall, um, I really, you know, I was, I felt like when I got my diagnosis, it was a really um, well done diagnosis. I didn't question it. It didn't feel mm -hmm. wrong to me in any way. Um, and that was the first time that ever happened to me also. Um, and I actually, I want to, I want to speak to that if you don't mind, mm -hmm. if I interject. Sure. No, please do. Um, so one of the things that I have noticed throughout the years is that there are people who seek an evaluation because they want to, and there are people who seek an evaluation because someone else wants them to. Mm -hmm. And often when someone else wants them to, that someone else is not necessarily wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have, I have diagnosed individuals who are coming in because someone else wants them to, but sometimes what happens uh, when receiving that feedback is that for you, I think you kind of were like, yes, this is me. Mm -hmm. Um, this is true. And, and you felt like maybe for the first time you were kind of having a clinician reflect your truth back to you. Mm -hmm. And I think that what happens when a lot of times when the driving force is that someone else wants someone to be evaluated, yeah, it doesn't necessarily feel that way, but that also doesn't mean that it's wrong. It mm -hmm. just means that you're at a different place in the journey. Yep. And so, but at the end of it all, I think it, you should feel like you do going to any doctor, which is that if you feel uncomfortable, if you're feeling like it doesn't feel right, if, and, and something about it is off, you know, you're in charge. That's your life. Mm -hmm. It's your diagnosis. You get to leave. Um, yep. And so by all means, do not stay for an evaluation you are not comfortable with. Absolutely. Um, and the one thing that I, I don't say it on this podcast, I'm going to say it again because I say it every time I speak. If somebody tries to give you a diagnosis in 45 minutes after one appointment, that is not the person you should be seeing for anything but getting your gas. <laughs> like, that's it. There is no way anybody should be giving you a diagnosis for anything after one visit with 45 minutes. No. And I think so, after one visit, you can certainly have an impression of whether or not it's worth pursuing an evaluation, but you mm -hmm. cannot have a diagnosis. No. And so, you know, I've had that come up many times where somebody has gone for an evaluation and they got that they um they went they went to see someone about it and they said no but it still feels like the right thing what do you mean they said no well i went to see someone i just went to see a therapist i had one appointment and they said no it wasn't possible so that was it well right. that's not 
that's not real deal. So please take yourselves out of those situations as well. They're not safe situations to be in. The other um, thing I think that you you kind of highlighted a little bit earlier that I, I think is important to kind of readdress. So um, I've been questioned as a clinician my entire career. Um, one, I, I, I look young. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, I, at the time, was actually young for doing mm-hmm. what I was doing. And so I've had parents and adults who are coming in for diagnostic evaluations of their children or for self-diagnostic you know, diagnostic that where they really, like, they want to hear about my background. They want to hear about my training. They want to understand what my experience is. And I have to tell you, I encourage people to ask those questions. Um, it is not uncomfortable for, it should not be uncomfortable Mm -hmm. for a clinician to have to answer those questions. Um, it should not like elicit a defensive response from a clinician, um, to have to share that information. It is you being an intelligent consumer of your own healthcare Mm -hmm. to ask those kinds of questions. Um, and I still, you know, I've been working in this community for over a decade and I still get that. It happened. Yep. And I speak publicly and, you know, mm-hmm. I do all kinds of things. And and I really there are people, you know, who know me and it's, it doesn't matter. And as far as I'm concerned, I think that every um, one has the right to ask those kinds of questions when you're talking about investing your time and your money and your trust in mm-hmm. a clinician um, to go through a diagnostic evaluation process because it is vulnerable and it is it's challenging. Yeah, um, and, and it is. It's also very expensive. Let's be real. Yeah. It's not covered by insurance. Um, it's not. I mean, if for many kids, you know, they get it through the school system and that's fortunate. But for adults, most of us are paying out of pocket and it's an expensive thing to go and do. And so um, consider it an investment. And that means you get mm-hmm. to ask questions. Um, mm mm-hmm. It's an investment in you, and that's probably the most important investment you can make. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I guess, let's see, let's go to the to the tail end. So you go through this whole process. You go through the diagnosis. They give you your diagnosis. Now what? What do you do with that diagnosis? Mm. Right? So um, for me, I am... And for many of us on the spectrum, we're, we're information hungry. Like, I just need it. I need everything. I need everything I can read about it, know about it right away. So um, immediately after getting my diagnosis, it was just about getting a hold of information and um, getting books, getting <laughs> um, anything I could get a hold of, um, as well as beginning therapy, which is something I also encourage. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that that's sort of my what I say to people, you know, when you're getting a diagnosis, you're on the spectrum, you're going to be looking for information. So go get your information, use your strengths, use that skill set that you have and go and teach yourself about yourself. Go learn about your diagnosis, go find your peers, go find your community um, and get to know everybody, get to know you all over again. You sort of get to reflect a lot on what life was like before that diagnosis. So um, you get to learn about you. So to walk through that process. Um, I think if you can find a good memoir by somebody who's been diagnosed, somebody that, you know, read at the backs of a couple of them and, and if they stick out to you, there's a few I would recommend. I always recommend Be Different by Donald mm-hmm. Robeson. I recommend Pretending to Be Normal by Leanne Holly Wiley. Mm-hmm. And I also um, will often recommend Nerdy, Shy, and Socially Inappropriate by Cynthia Kim. Um, those are just three of my favorites. Um, and then, <clears throat> you know, there's tons and tons of books about 
oh my god just about any topic so anything plus autism and you can google mm -hmm. it and, and get the information that you need um and i would say some really good national organizations i would say the best one at the moment is autism society of america they have local chapters just about everywhere so that's a great resource to start with really the thing that helped me the most was seeking out my community and my peers so if you're a support group person go check one out if you're not a support group person still check one out and make sure you're not a support group person um because the support group with your peers is different than one you've ever been in before mm -hmm. um and um you know, see if you can get yourself to a conference, try to yeah. um, get involved with maybe, you know, there's some walks in your in your area that they may be doing some autism stuff, but really kind of reach out because I think you'll find um, when you do start reaching out, there's going to be a lot of familiar people that you're finding yourself, you're going to be feeling like you're looking in the mirror a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I felt like that helped me through the inner journey was um, to be externally kind of looking for my community. I had found my yeah. people. It was really exciting. Well, and I, I think that some, for people who maybe need like to take a step back and be a little more internal first, um, definitely sticking with the, the books you recommended is a great idea. I also really love um, Living Well on the Spectrum by mm -hmm. Valerie Krauss, yep. which is like a, a workbook style. And one of the things that I think um, Valerie does really nicely in that text is kind of outline everything in terms of understanding what what a person's differences are, mm -hmm. but then also saying, all right, well, what are the tools? And I think really like that's the key. And here's what I want to say. I will say this so clearly. Um, when I say what are the tools, I am not saying that I expect adults on the spectrum to go out and change who they are to fit into the world. That is not what I'm saying. I want to be very, very <laughs> clear. <laughs> what I'm saying is when there are things that are getting in your way as an individual that you do not want those things to get in your way, what do you do to prevent those things from right. getting in your way? So that means, and we all do that. Neurotypical yep. people have to do that. People on the spectrum have to do that. People with ADHD do that. People with a range of mental health presentations do that. We all have to do that. We all have things that get in our way sometimes. Yep. And I will tell you that I not only use that book myself when I work uh, work through my diagnosis, but the thing that I love that I did and that my OCD did for me, like I never write in books. I really don't. I don't write in books. So I photocopied because it is, you know, there's reading parts, but there are parts that you really kind of need to put the effort into. And yep. I felt stupid and I complained about it because it was like, felt like kindergarten homework a little bit. Um, and, but I will tell you, it was the most, uh, I don't know, it, it gave me inner knowledge in a way that I didn't even know that you could have. Like, I didn't realize how much my natural biological clock like my natural circadian rhythm had been making other things in my life so difficult because I was trying to do everything to to go against it mm -hmm. instead of learning to work with it and there's one section in the book where we go through and you you talk about what times of day you feel your best yep and it was the first time that I stopped to think about it that way um, and so I did I didn't I didn't write in it I did a photocopied and I filled them all out because I'll tell you that over the years I've gone back to certain chapters when I've been struggling with that thing again Mm -hmm. And because things in my life have shifted, my answers mm -hmm. to those questions aren't the same. Yep. And so it's a, I keep it around. I photocopy it for other people. I think it's a great book. So, yes, good to the list. I like that. Um, and I do think I think it's super important that like there is, you know, an understanding that none of these tools or resources or recommendations are there because anyone expects 
you know, you to change. It's truly about how do we equip you with the correct tools so that you can function in the world in the way that you want to. Um, and also like how to advocate for yourself so that people stop imposing their values on you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, because I, I think that happens, you know, so much, well, you should be socializing more. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. Well, Hey, guess what? Maybe you should be, you know, living your life on your, you know, to the beat of your own drum, but mm-hmm. doing it with an understanding of, okay, well, when do I maybe want to march a little differently? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that one of the, like, the best kind of, like, metaphors or, like, personal kind of examples that I give of that is that, um, you know, I'm a different person at home than I am at work. Mm-hmm. I'm a different person in my social, my personal social relationships than I am um, in working with the individuals I work with. Um, and that requires me to have the ability to understand when I turn on certain parts of myself and when I turn off certain parts of myself. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do so that I can feel successful in the workplace and in my home life. This is just one example, right? Yep. And I think one of the things that... Um, often kind of get like a message that doesn't get heard or doesn't get sent is Mm -hmm. that, you know, when we're offering these tools and recommendations, it's really because we want, I have that flexibility that came to me more naturally. And that's part of me being neurotypical, that flexibility of figuring that out often does not happen as naturally for individuals on the spectrum. And that's really what we're trying to help support is, is promoting where, um, knowing where and when and how to be flexible. Yep. And I think, you know, it was interesting to find out the times that I was really doing things by rote or I had learned a way to cope with it. That was, was it working? Yes. But was it what I wanted? And was it um, achieving Mm -hmm. the results that I really wanted? No. And so I, you know, that's the part that I really love about using tools and like kind of the tools that or exist in Valerie Gauss's book, but in many of the, the tools that we see throughout and really actually any mental health tools is sort of, mm-hmm. it, it brings you back to the idea of what do I want though? And, mm-hmm. and am I really pr- putting my energy to, into doing stuff that I really want or am I not? And mm-hmm. sometimes it means really stopping and looking back at what p- time of day am I doing these things? Am I doing it right. for myself at that time of day or am I doing it for everybody else? Um, and it, and it's that, that piece. So, right. I mean, I, I took me a full solid year of really just dedicating my whole goal for that year was just working through my diagnosis right. to really get to that place. But so it's not, other, it doesn't happen right away. By any yeah. means. The other thing I would say is, um, you know, from the evaluation process, you know, my hope is always that a person walks away from a feedback meeting with me with an understanding of not just, okay, this is the diagnosis, but, but more importantly, I mean, yes, that's helpful, but way more importantly, what are their strengths? Um, And because what we do know is research has told us that it is easier to build on a strength than it is to build on a weakness. So walking away with an understanding of your strengths is super important because that's then how you know, okay, well, what do I do next? What are your strengths? What are the things that um, you're good at or the traits about you that you can really kind of grab on and use to help you optimize, you know, the things in your life that you want to be different than they are right now. Um, and so I think that that's a really important, um, kind of element of all of this is really getting the, what are the strengths? Um, 
And then what do you do with them? How do you build on those strengths? So whether that means pursuing some form of career or vocation that is in line with a strength, whether that means, um, you know, being aware, like, like you said, Becca, like, oh, I'm stronger here than I am here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all kinds of things like around that. But I think that awareness of strengths is so important for being able to kind of build that into the what do we do next? Yeah, because just I mean, I probably was totally unaware of having any strengths at the time that I got diagnosed. So it was really important for me to, to kind of understand that there were things that I was good at. Mm-hmm. Um they were just being covered up by all the things I was struggling with. <laughs> so right. that, you know, that was really, you know, discovering that and, and finding that was really an important part of the diagnosis diagnosis process for me. Right. Um, I also think, you know, kind of closing the loop mm-hmm. between, okay, this is what, um, this is what I came in, right? So how I kind of said that the evaluation sort of depends on what they're doing with it. So by the end of a feedback, you should know, okay, what do I do next? If you're coming in thinking maybe you're applying for services or, you know, maybe that you need vocational support or whatever. So it should always be that there's kind of a, a connection of the dots, if you will, between like what you came in looking for and what you're getting back at the feedback. Um, and, you know, I really like based on a person's level of needs, I kind of, I literally prioritize the way I write recommendations. So like when someone receives recommendations from me, the first recommendation section, it really is because that's the highest area of need. Mm-hmm. Um, so for some individuals that might be vocational supports for some that might be about how to go about getting services for some that might be therapy recommendations. Mm-hmm. Um, it really just depends. Um, for some, it might be executive functioning recommendations. All right. Um, we're really going to have to do an executive functioning episode. <laughs> We've said it like three times now. Well, it's and good. as you know, I can also talk about that all day long. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, really kind of having an understanding of, of like, are my questions answered? Did I get recommendations about what to do next? Um, you know, do I know what my strengths are? Do I know what the areas are that maybe are hardest for me? And how do I support those areas? Um, I think that that kind of comprehensive picture of yourself is really the thing you should be walking away from an evaluation with. Well, I think we did a really good job of kind of layering out all the components of a diagnosis. Um, I think I want to maybe just end on one last thought, which is um, the piece about disclosure. Um, mm. When you get your diagnosis, understand that disclosure is now another thing that is totally up to you. Um, it is your diagnosis to disclose. It is your diagnosis to decide whom to disclose it to and when to disclose it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that for me, the trigger reaction after my diagnosis was to stand on top of a roof and shout it, you know, with a megaphone to the whole world. <laughs> it was. It was genuinely what I wanted to do. I just wanted to stand and yell and be like, I told you so. Like, you know what I mean? And it was like that for me. It was super freeing. Um, but um, I'm really glad that my mom was a little bit more rational than I was at the time. And she was like, I don't know. Why don't you think about it for a little bit? And then by the time I got in to see my therapist, I was given some really good advice about it, um, which is that when you go to disclose, think to yourself and ask yourself, what is it that you would like this person's reaction to be? And how will you feel if that's not the reaction that you get? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think you you want you know like for me I wanted everyone to be so excited for me that I found this thing that had been you know 
I had been struggling with my whole life. Um, but many people didn't feel that way about it. Um, mm-hmm. And some people didn't know how to feel about it. Um, and that was shocking to me because it was my thing. Why did they, I, you know, like, why does it matter to them how, th- how they should feel about it? But a lot of people did. Um, and I wasn't yet, um, I think, able to articulate through the diagnosis very well at the time either. So I really wasn't able to kind of explain anything any better to people. So mm-hmm. it was sort of not a great time to kind of disclose. I did disclose to close family members. Um, and that's about it. Um, and then I just sort of learned my disclosure as I went along and decided mm-hmm. who to disclose to. Um, but so that's something I just want to kind of put out there just because you I'm get gonna, your diagnosis. Hmm? I'm going to add to that. Okay, good. Because the other thing that I also say, especially when I'm working with teens and young adults or even, you know, uh, into regular adulthood, if you will, um, is that when I'm working with families um, as well, I'm very clear that this is not their information to disclose. Um, And that it's not that we're building shame around this. We are not. It is not that this is a secret. It is not necessarily a secret, but it is up to the individual who has the diagnosis to be the one to decide to whom and when information is dispersed. Correct. Which Uh, is really important. Family members listening. Really important. Um, because the person's reason for not wanting to disclose to somebody else may have nothing to do with shame. I know I didn't disclose to some people, not because I cared about people knowing, but because they were gossipy people. Mm-hmm. Right. And I didn't care if they knew, but I didn't want like their whole family to know. Like, why do right. they have to do that? So I chose not to tell those people. So it doesn't have to be about shame that you're not disclosing. Um, right. It's just it's private information. I'm a very private person. I don't share certain things. Um, and I, you know, I hope that people are respectful of that. And so that's the idea that disclosure is coming off of. So do not be ashamed of your diagnosis. That's not what I'm saying. But it, because it's something that is so um, can change your life so much and is so important to to who you are as a person um, when you don't get the reaction that you're looking for, especially just from someone that really means a lot to you, um, it can be unexpectedly hurtful. And so to kind of think that through and know that's a possibility before you go through with a disclosure is important. It kind of prepares you for what may be. Um, so. Having said all that, if you have more questions about diagnosis, you know you can always reach us um, and ask us questions. But I do hope that we've answered a whole bunch of questions for people about diagnosis, kind of demystified the whole process. Um, So we hope that you will continue to listen to us on our next show because that wraps it up for us here today. Be sure and check out Different Brains at differentbrains.org and check out their Twitter at DiffBrains as well as look for them on Facebook. If you're looking for me, you can find me at www.beccalaurie.com or you can look for me on LinkedIn and Facebook. And don't forget to follow Walter on Instagram at Sir Walter Underfoot. And I can be found via my website, which is www.spectrumpsychservices.com or via my email, which is drcody at spectrumpsychservices.com. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And don't hesitate to send questions to spectrumlyspeaking at gmail.com. And let's keep the conversation going. Spectrumly Speaking is a production of Different Brains. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.